2: Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Well, welcome everyone to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast Today, I'm joined in with a special guest joining me in from all the way over in the US. Um, We've been bouncing messages for quite some time. I actually met him through, I think it was through the Ray Pete Forum uh, back in the day. Um, We started bouncing ideas and things like that. So, um, Sean, welcome to the show, man.
1: Thanks. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: No worries, man. So let's sort of... um, give my audience a bit of a, a backdrop into I guess your journey um, into health optimization
1: yeah uh, so I've always been pretty classically trained in kind of hard sciences my undergraduate degrees were in math and physics uh, but it was never really my passion I was a I was a teacher for a couple of years teaching chemistry and physics and at the, in my second year of teaching I actually fractured my spine and uh I went to a chiropractor for that. And then I kind of knew I wanted to switch careers, didn't know what I wanted to do. But once I found out about chiropractic, I kind of just fell in love with that whole field and profession. And I've always been super into nutrition, supplementation, health, but never knew what to do with it. I knew I didn't want to be like a dietitian or, or anything like that. So once I found out about chiropractic, I just kind of went full steam ahead. And I quit teaching, went to chiro school. Uh, did that for three and a half years, and in the, in, during that time, kind of focused on nutrition and supplementation as a specialty, and I was actually uh, the nutrition tutor for the whole school for my last, uh, my last year there. Um, and since then, I've been, I've been a practicing chiropractor here in San Diego, uh, California, and I treat a variety of conditions, but uh, on the side, kind of more with the, the whole internet side of things, I, I really focus a lot on health. Nutrition supplementation. My whole philosophy and goal is to try to cut through all the noise, all the fad dieting, all the myths that are out there. Because for the average person, it could be so confusing to navigate through all that and to to know what's true and what's not true. Even if you've been you know in this field for a decade, you yeah. still could kind of fall prey to some myths and, and things like that. So my goal is just to kind of come from a research-based, evidence-based uh, place. And just trying to get to approximating it as close to the truth as possible when it comes to health and nutrition.
2: That's awesome, man. So I'm curious to know, Sean. Like, just in your like your early early days, in terms of like um, your nutritional approach. Like, did you ever adhere to any specific like diet, or do you ever like jump on any sort of diet bandwagon at all?
1: Yeah, especially in the beginning, um, like when I was in undergrad and stuff, I, I went through kind of the whole gamut of types of diets. I, I've i tried low carb dieting. I tried keto. I tried very low fat dieting. Um, in the beginning, it was all focused more towards body composition. Uh, and then I started, as I got more and more into it, it started getting more towards health. But uh, in the beginning, it was all body composition. And Really from my own experiments, I pretty much found that no matter which diet I chose uh, as long as it you know wasn't too crazy you know whether it's low fat, low carb, they all worked they all I was all able to get to a low body fat percentage either way. The, the biggest thing that I found was actually coming out of those diets. So the, the dieting process itself like trying to lose lose weight, lose fat, uh, it, any of them worked they all worked um, and, and you, I could all get to kind of the same place. But I realized with some of them, I had to be very careful because if I went off of the diet, especially like keto or low-carb dieting, if I jumped right back into high carbs or where I used to, like at the level I used to intake, then the fat would come back way, way quicker than before. And so that's when I started realizing there's something going on here and started to look for a more kind of sustainable way. Because um, at the beginning, I was kind of doing this like up and down where I'd have to continuously go through cuts yeah. And then after the cut was over, I would just, you know, within 10 weeks or so, I kind of be back to where I was at before and it just was a cycle. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of kind of where I started at. And then over the years, it's gone more towards sustainability, more towards health, uh, and not just purely, you know, body composition and stuff, but that that still comes into play for sure.
2: Mm. So you mentioned like when you did go on that sort of low carb diet, did, that, did you find that that sort of affected your like physical training at all, like in the gym and stuff like that?
1: Well, for, for sure. Absolutely. So I don't eat, I don't do low carb dieting at all anymore. Um, I'm I, lifting is my primary form of exercise. And if I cut the carbs too low, I really suffer with that. Yep. Uh, I remember one time when I was doing a keto diet a long time ago, I went to go do some deadlifts. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it, I only put like a couple plates on, but it was more like for, for higher reps and more of a, a pump type training at the time. And I know. And right after that first set, I had I went immediately to the bathroom, and I literally I w- I was just gonna like sit on a toilet, but I just collapsed on the ground, and I just like laid there because I, I like everything was out of me. Like I thought I was gonna pass out. It was just such a bad feeling. And I and that and then that day I quit keto. I'm like, no, I can't do this anymore. It's just yeah. it's screwing with my workouts.
2: Do you think back then, like when you were um, experimenting, like with keto, were you? Pretty well versed in terms of like understanding electrolytes and stuff. Like, was that potentially just like a sodium depletion or?
1: Yeah, it could, it could have been definitely sodium or potassium, one of the two. Uh, and if I if I supplemented with those a little bit more, could have helped for sure. Yeah. Um, but even you know even with even with without going keto, when I cut the carbs too low, usually if it's if it's under like 150 or under 100 grams a day, then I start to notice that uh that my workouts just aren't as good as they could be otherwise and mm-hmm. so i don't even i just don't even mess with that anymore
2: so what about um cuz i know a lot of my listeners would be struggling with like thyroid issues and things like that and i know you've personally maybe like experimented or or even struggled with thyroid conditions did you did you notice that like your that was affected when you're on that sort of keto diet
1: yeah well yeah definitely um so w- for myself kind of that was kind of how i transitioned more from just researching the body composition aspect of dieting and, and nutrition, and started to go more towards the health was because back in my senior year of high school, I got my first thyroid test done because I just was I was feeling terrible. I, I had to sleep for like ten hours every day. If I got eight hours of sleep every day, I was struggling. So yeah. it was it was getting to a bad point. I didn't have insomnia. I wasn't up all night. Like I, I would crash as soon as I hit the pillow, but I was just never well rested. Um, that was the biggest thing that I, that I felt. And then, uh, I never had, you know, too much of an issue with weight gain, but that was primarily because I did a lot of uh, calorie counting back then. So I was able to kind of control it, even though my thyroid wasn't in the best shape. So when I got that first thyroid test, it came back at a 4.9, I believe, uh, TSH level. And then the T3 was under reference range. Uh, T4 was at the low end. Um, and so, I didn't really know what to do at the time, and then you know every year I would get kind of a checkup, and it just kept getting worse. So the next year it was like at five point two, five point three, and then a couple of years later it was kind of at its worst when it got to five point nine, was the highest I saw it for me. Um, and right now I'm doing pretty well. My my last test came back at a three, which is you know, but it's it's at least within range. Hmm. So uh, and there's still a couple of things I'm gonna. I'm going to do still to kind of improve that number a bit, but I don't have any of the, you know, subjective issues anymore. And my T3 is, is back in range too. So, um, but definitely, you know, when, when, when my thyroid was a little worse, the diets would definitely have an effect. And, uh, if in the low carbs, it just, I just didn't feel good. I would get cranky. I, I started to develop insomnia sometimes for low carb diets. My workouts started suffering. It was just, it was not a good recipe.
2: Yeah, I know. So, what about in terms of um, like when you did have that reading of like, was it 4.9 at one stage? Or- so, my highest was 5.9. 5.9. So, at that time, did you, um, were you taking temperatures at all? Like, did you ever get into.
1: One- yeah, I, I did. Um, there was a big gap between that, that 5.9 reading and then afterwards. So, I didn't get it tested for a while after that. Uh, and what I started doing was the temperature checks. That's kind of when I started getting into repeat form and, uh, and started reading about thyroid temperature, all that s- sort of thing. So I started measuring my temperature. In the beginning, um, when I first started measuring it, I would often have numbers in the 96 uh, and you know, it never would go above 97.2 Fahrenheit. So uh, it, was, it was consistently pretty low. And nowadays, when I'm, I measure my thyroid pretty often, and I'm usually in the night, like as long as it's not in the morning, um, I'm usually in like 98 uh, point something. Uh, in the morning, it's usually 97.6, somewhere around there. So uh, I'm doing pretty good with that right now. What
2: are some of the um, factors that you found that really influenced that morning, um, morning wakening temperature?
1: Yeah, so I've done I've done so much research on, on hypothyroidism uh, and went through the gamut of supplements with that too. Uh, so a couple of things that really stood out to me: the one uh, is is omega threes. So there's consi- there's so much research for both hyper and hypothyroidism that omega threes uh, can can play a large role in thyroid health. Uh, tons of animal studies, a uh, few human studies that are that are pretty good too. Um, if you look at you know just normal rats and you supplement them with omega threes, and even if they don't have a thyroid issue, their th- their T three always goes up, especially if you supplement them with something like flaxseed oil, is the one that they use in that study. Uh, so 3T went up you know much higher than the the saturated fat lard condition, and uh, and then if you take and then there's a couple of rat studies with hypothyroidism that giving them uh, fish oil. Can can kind of bring down the TSH level and increase the T3, that sort of thing.
2: Hmm. This so will that's be that's a yeah. huge one. Well, that's going to be that's going to fly in the face of a lot of people, uh, particularly in the raping forum, in terms of like, well, the yeah. omega- very supporting thyroid function.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because so if anyone here, if you're into, if you're on that forum, uh, you can you can find an article that, or a post that I put there, um, but. My name on the forum is called Zarin77. But if you search my name, you'll find that post. It's all about omega threes and thyroid, and I listed tons of studies. And I'll, I'll, you can—the pictures are there. I posted the pictures that showed that when they were supplemented with omega threes, um, flaxseed oil in this case, compared to a saturated fat, and it wasn't like skyrocket high numbers. You know, it was normal levels of fat intake for, for the rats. It wasn't a high fat diet. And um, the, the omega-3s had a lot higher of T3 output than the saturated fat did. And it, I mean, it kind of makes sense because saturated fat, especially in higher amounts, it's one of those things that's going to block kind of carbohydrate utilization. Saturated fat competes the most with glucose entry into the cell and with glucose oxidation once inside the cell. And it's most responsible for things like lipotoxicity in high amounts too.
2: Mm. So... Yeah, there's um <clears throat> one of my close friends is actually vegan, and he continuously bombards me and tells me that um, when you combine the saturated fat with a you know carbohydrate source, let's say red like let's say steak and white rice, like what's the what's the actual rationale? What's the science behind how saturated fat blocks quote unquote blocks glucose entry
1: into the cell? So it's it's mainly to do it's it's with a few different things, but it's not you know, it's not just saturated fat. There's other things that come into the diet too, because let's say if you have a high fructose intake, or you're just chugging like Coke all day long, for example, then your liver is going to produce its own saturated fat. And that's going to show up in the form of triglycerides in the blood panel, right? So if you have high triglycerides, that's usually caused from too much sugar, too much carbs, especially refined carbs, things like that. But either way, whether you're taking the saturated fat directly from steak or something, or it's getting produced by the liver from carbs, when there's a lot of saturated fat floating around in the bloodstream, whether in the form of triglycerides or free fatty acids, that directly decreases insulin sensitivity. So it makes it harder for the glucose molecule to enter the cell that way. When it's in, when when the saturated fat actually gets into the cell, uh, it's harder to burn for energy. Long chain saturated fat is the hardest. Fat to break down for energy compared to any other form of fatty acid that you can tell me. So it, it's just there's no double bonds. It's it's a long chain. It's hard to break down. Um, and so you know there's benefits to that. There's drawbacks to that. But in terms of being able to oxidize it for energy, it's it's the hardest. And so when it gets into the cell, it sticks around there a little bit longer. And it'll it, the buildup of saturated fat is called lipotoxicity. And so when they do these studies and they, you know, they put saturated fat in a muscle cell, they find the glucose oxidation goes way down compared to adding any, a monounsaturated or a polyunsaturated. But the cool thing is if you, if you add a polyunsaturated fat with the saturated fat, it can help to block that effect. So it, it's not like, I'm not saying to avoid saturated fats completely, that's not what I'm saying, but there's a lot of people that will focus way too much on trying to have a high saturated fat intake and a very low polyunsaturated fat intake, and that can lead them to issues. We know insulin resistance, uh, fatty liver, that type of thing could just contribute to those type of issues. So maybe
2: Mm -hmm. because I've got some listeners that may not really understand the differences between the types of fats. So we'll break it down really simply for them. Do you want to go through maybe like, yeah, so starting with saturated, then mono, then poly, and then trans.
1: Yeah, so there's three main types. There's saturated, which has no double bonds. So you can think of it as just one long chain. Then there's monounsaturated, and this has one double bond. So you can think of it like a V or like, you know, a V shape. Uh, And then there's polyunsaturated, which has two or more double bonds. And so you can think of it like a C. It's like a C-shaped fatty acid. So... um, in terms of what these fatty acids I'm going to talk about the saturated I'm only talking about long chain saturated fat so coconut oil kind of is an exception to this cuz it's half of it's medium chain and so it's going to act a little differently but you know animal fats butter that type of thing those are all going to be more towards the long chain saturated fat side um then mono is going to be like olive oil avocado oil those are your two biggest forms of mono unsaturated fat and then poly is going to be you know, soybean oil, corn oil, uh, flaxseed oil, hemp seed oil, um, fish oil, all of those types of the seeds and, and that type of thing. Most of the nuts, uh, like almonds, they're also more in the mono side of things too, mono unsaturated fat. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to poly, you have a ton of different options and I'm not a fan of all of them because when you talk about polyunsaturated fats, you should really break them up into two different types. Exactly. You should break them up into omega-6s and omega-3s. Yeah. And in my opinion, and this is, something, this is something that's not really talked about a whole lot, I think you should even break up the omega-6s into different types, <laughs> into refined and unrefined. Right. So just like olive oil and just like coconut oil, if you look at the research with olive or coconut oil, if you take refined versions of olive oil and coconut oil, they do not get good results in the research. They never have. No one's ever been suggesting to buy refined olive oil and, and consume that. It's always extra virgin, right? Yeah yeah because that is the polyphenols in it that are antioxidative they also help keep the oil stable all that type of thing. When you eat like whole hemp seeds so the whole seed and you're not just taking like a refined oil it could, it's going to act completely different in the body. But most people with the polyunsaturated fats they're getting it from you know restaurants where they're cooking in it or frying in it or they're getting it from processed food or packaged food or all of these things and it's just an overload of refined polyunsaturated fats. And I totally agree with like the repeat form on that, that you need to bring those way, way down and they're going to be detrimental to your health. Mm Because not only are they refined, but usually they're oxidized by the time you eat them too. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's a ton of of a burden on your body. But comparing that to, you know, unrefined omega-6s or like the omega-3s, like a good cold pressed flaxseed oil or fish oil, that's good quality brand. uh, Those are going to have really different effects on the body.
2: Mm. So let's talk about, I guess, with the polyunsaturated fats. You mentioned that they can be um, detrimental depending on if they're oxidized, right? So, what yeah. are some strategies that we can um, utilize to offset that oxidized um, polyunsaturated fat?
1: Yeah. So I don't. So the biggest strategy is just not to consume any refined omega sixes. So it's it's hard to avoid because if you go out to a restaurant. Uh, they're, that's what they're going to be using. They're going to be using a vegetable oil to cook things in because they're they're not going to pay for expensive oils, right? So, anytime you have added fat that needs to be used to cook, when you go out to a fast food place or even a good quality restaurant, it's going to very likely be a type of vegetable oil. And the reason that's so bad is because these polyunsaturated fats they they can play a role, and they're important in in transporting electrons one reason that they that they can that they can have such good effects in our body is because of how they can hold on to electrons with their electron cloud due to the double bond but when you oxidize them so when you take these oils that are refined and so it's nothing but fat and then you cook with them you fry with them they get completely oxidized you know they oxidize super super quickly and the problem with that is that these omega 6s when they get oxidized those oxidized products are super harmful and inflammatory to our body. And it's hard for our body to deal with it. So it uses up vitamin E, it uses up vitamin C, it uses up our own antioxidants to try to combat the oxidative stress that mm. comes from them. And plus, on top of that, it creates this pro-inflammatory environment for our colon, for when it gets absorbed into our bloodstream, for our microvasculature, vas- all of that. So having too much omega-6s from from that sort of a source is always going to lead to problems in the body, and in my opinion, that's one of like the huge issues of why so many people are unhealthy because they have such a large intake of that type of fat.
2: Mm. I'm curious to know, man. Have you ever researched uh, much on arachidonic acid at all? Like the omega- yeah, for
1: sure. Mm. For are you talking in terms of like muscle growth things like that?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm wait, I'm waiting for mine to arrive. I have got a sample coming. I'm so super keen to try it out.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, um, I mean arachidonic acid; it has some promise. Um, You know, a lot of people automatically assume it with as a very pro-inflammatory, you know, precursor to prostaglandins that are pro-inflammatory. But you know, in small amounts, in the terms you're probably going to supplement with, I don't think it's going to cause any health issues. You typically get arachidonic acid from meats and eggs. uh, Even if you do have like these polyunsaturated fats that hypothetically could turn into arachidonic acid what what we what we know from research is if you supplement with more omega-6s it does not usually increase the conversion to arachidonic acid so usually that arachidonic acid level is pretty fixed and so more omega-6 intake doesn't raise it higher so you do kind of have to supplement with it kind of directly like you like you are but it has some promise um personally um i don't know how i don't the research that I've seen, I'm not, I don't think it's super strong in terms of ma- uh, like effect size. And I've one, one thing I've kind of struggled with is tendonitis issues. Mm. So like tricep tendonitis has been, you know, killing me for the last year. Uh, and Omega three has helped a ton with my tendonitis issues. So I'm, I'm not going to be super, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to be super keen to just supplement with them, um, with the arachidonic acid is going to kind of gonna offset maybe some, of the anti-inflammatory benefits I'm getting from the omega-3s. But it's worth a try. I think we need more research, more human research on kind of the effect size uh, for that. But um, yeah, it definitely could be be worth something.
2: Yeah, the one thing that I heard uh, about the arachidonic acid was um, in particular in some of these um, bodybuilding forums is that it actually exacerbates the DOMS. So it actually promotes that inflammation, which is what I want because I want that. I noticed that when I'm really sore post-workout, um, and when I've had like a wicked, really, really good pump, I, I tend to notice like, I don't know, it's not an acute noticeable change in muscle size, but I notice that my strength goes up quicker when I have like more inflammation, more pumps, uh, more like just general um, cell swelling. So that's the reason for, it's just another experiment. Just keen to see how it goes.
1: Yeah, for sure. For, as far as I know, um, the primary prostaglandin, that contributes to muscle growth uh from like that whole inflammatory environment is PGF2 alpha. Right. Is kind of the main one. Um and what, another cool way to increase that prostaglandin besides supplementing with arachidonic acid is through a very powerful stretch of a muscle uh with load. Yeah. So we know this from rat studies, from bird studies, and from uh, actually from a couple human studies we have now. So uh, if you've ever heard of DC training or dog crap training, one of the things they do is, and, and this guy, uh, the guy that started it, he's responsible. If you see like the people he trains, they turn into like monsters. A lot of them are on roids, but uh, you know, either some of them aren't, and there it's just they turn into monsters, and it's a pretty low volume type of training. But what they do is after each set, they'll they'll take the, that muscle through like a super heavy stretch with loads. So like, let's say they do bench presses. After the set of bench press or after their final set of that of that exercise, they'll grab dumbbells and they'll do flies. But instead of, you know, doing regular flies, they'll grab like 40 pounds and they'll just hold it off to the side. Just let it hang down and just stretch the muscle and hold it there for like a minute and it is the most painful, excruciating thing, but it, it can work pretty well, and I've I've actually used that myself sometimes. But it gets you incredibly sore, like super sore. Oh, uh, so that might be worth an experiment too.
2: Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, it's just basically playing on that principle of like time under tension, really. Yeah. But it seems like it's at that maximal stretch position. Is that when the yeah. muscles the weakest or the, Yeah, I think so. Would it be the muscles the weakest at that point?
1: well what what the, what they found from the from some of the cell studies was they found that if that the more that they you know as the muscle contracts it was releasing this prostaglandin but if they had the same amount of contraction at a longer muscle length that they had more of this pgf2 alpha release wow so that's why you know how like for bicep curls a lot of times they'll say to do like do it on an incline bench.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you'll yeah.
1: see people doing it because that takes, it, it takes the bicep and it stretches it a little bit more. And so you're working that bicep in kind of an elongated position. Mm. So it seems like, um, like the, it just responds in terms of hypertrophy a little bit better when you get to kind of that elongated or maximally stretched position. Mm. So that's, it's an interesting concept for sure. Yeah,
2: I'm going to give that a try for sure. So I want to sort of segue into, um, a bit on dairy. Cause, uh, I would love to hear your stance and your um, positioning um, on dairy. And I'm sure you've probably flicked back and forth over the years. Maybe at one stage you were anti-dairy or, and now you might be pro-dairy. So what's, what's your stance there, man?
1: Yeah. So my, my stance on dairy is really nuanced. Um, I'm not one of, I don't ha- I don't think, I'm not one of the people that say that everyone should have dairy and I'm not someone that says no one should have dairy. Yeah. So uh, it, you know, First, let's talk about kind of the average. So, what the research shows on average is when people consume dairy compared to those who don't, or if they've never consumed dairy and they start consuming dairy, it actually tends to decrease inflammatory markers in the body. And I post one of my Instagram posts has has this research, but uh, it you know it's very consistent. So there's the meta analysis of all of the different randomized trials showed they very consistently, things like C-reactive protein would go down or inflammatory markers like interleukin-1 or interleukin-1-beta or TNF-alpha or all of these you know, pro-inflammatory markers, they would tend to decrease a little bit with dairy intake. Um, now, the interesting thing is why, why would that be? Why would dairy actually be anti-inflammatory? Uh, one of the reasons is likely the fact that it increases uh, uh, the NAD levels in the body and it can increase uh, cert one because of that. So, so Sean,
2: Sean, for our listeners, they might not be familiar with what NAD is. Do you want to quickly break that down? Sure.
1: Yeah. So NAD, it's kind of, if you've heard of like, you know, niacin or niacinamide or nicotinamide riboside, there's all these different forms that are kind of coming out now. But it's all kind of in the long anti-aging longevity sort of scheme. Mm. Um, but what we know is that NAD levels are are really useful for kind of cells, not only cell signaling, but cell, cell defense. So if the cell is under attack, whether it's from, you know, a workout or if it's from, you just had a stroke and your cells have to deal with that oxidative stress and that damage and inflammation, when you have low NAD levels, it makes it harder for your cells to deal with that and kind of respond in an appropriate manner. When you're able to increase NAD in the, um, in the cells, Then they're able to respond with like higher antioxidant output. They're able to respond with enhanced cell-to-cell communication. So, so many different aspects of how they're able to kind of survive these kind of stressful conditions. Mm. So, um, one thing that's really cool about NAD is that it also increases the level of CERT-1, which is this other protein that's also in kind of this longevity scheme of things that is responsible for like, you know, endurance training or for people that, you know, exercise frequently. And and one of the, there's many benefits to exercise. There's a lot of reasons that it's, that it's beneficial, but one of the cell signaling pathways that gets activated is this certain one. And it helps to, you know, increase glucose handling. It can increase insulin sensitivity. It tends to be anti-inflammatory. It tends to also protect cells from stress. So it just, those two things, they just do a lot of, of beneficial things in general. And uh, one of the things that dairy does is likely through its high leucine content, it actually synergizes with NAD and it makes that cell at, at a lower NAD level able to activate CERT1 more strongly. So it, it tends, and, and that's likely one of the benefits of why dairy can actually amplify the benefits of exercise because it can increase the CERT1. It kind of has a synergistic aspect with NAD to increase the CERT1 level. And mm. so dairy with exercise has always had this like great additive or synergistic component where when they, you know, consume a quart of milk after exercise, you consume whey protein or anything like that, it tends to amplify not only the muscle growth, but it can actually amplify the fat loss effects too. And mm. so one of the one of the reasons that might be is how it can kind of synergize to increase the the cert one protein.
2: Mm. And part of that all oh, the um cert one activation, we know that Various polyphenols can also activate and strengthen that pathway, and one in particular is
1: resveratrol, right? Yeah, resveratrol is kind of like the the golden bo- the golden boy of the polyphenols, right? Yeah. It's uh, it's one that's really well known, but you know whether it's resveratrol or curcumin or just you know you know what I like to, I'm not big on like single molecule supplementation when it comes to polyphenols because I've there's been the, just like issues with that. There's been you know, like there's been cancer studies where they gave uh, people with, uh, who, are, who had a likelihood for lung cancer or a, a, better, a greater likelihood for lung cancer, they gave them beta carotene with vitamin E for five years and they tracked them and they gave the other group the placebo. The group that was given beta carotene and vitamin E had an increased risk of lung cancer. Mm. And so, and that's just one example. But in general, when you're giving these isolated antioxidants, especially when you talk about a workout, they don't tend to work well together. So whether it's high dose vitamin E or vitamin C or resveratrol or even alpha lipoic acid, I mean, all of these guys, they can inhibit kind of the benefits of the workout because they interrupt kind of that pro-oxidative nature of the workout. So what what I like to focus on is instead of focusing on an individual polyphenol, doing what all healthy traditional diets have done for centuries, which is having a high polyphenol diet in general so that's you know that's fruits berries vegetables nuts seeds all these things any you know legumes even all these unrefined foods they're just loaded with polyphenols anything that has a color taste smell all those things they tend to come from the polyphenols so that's kind of one of the key components to any healthy diet in my opinion
2: mm. yeah and i i personally like i've researched them quite a lot as well and and you know, I've experimented with them um, in isolation and things like that. Um, but I think one thing that we can agree on is that a lot of them actually exert their beneficial effects on health span by interacting with the microbiome, right? Like, a lot uh,
1: yeah, of absolutely
2: influence that influence that state. So, what sort of research have you found um, in terms of like polyphenols'
1: effects in the gut? Yeah, so polyphenols are something we've evolved with, so. You know, as as even as cavemen, we were picking up, we were picking fruits, we were picking, you know, nuts, seeds, kind of whatever we could forage, right? All of these things, they have these polyphenols and anything that has a color, taste, smell, again, that's coming from things like polyphenols. And so when you're talking about, you know, probiotics, prebiotics, things like that, what we know is that isolated fiber supplements don't tend to have as good of an effect as whole food sources of fiber. So, you know, isolated fiber supplements do not have strong linkage to reducing colon cancer, for example. But legumes do. They have a very strong link at reducing colon cancer. They're both filled with fiber, so what's the difference? The difference is that the legumes come with these polyphenols. So the fiber can feed anything. And if you have a if you have dysbiosis, if you have your if your gut's messed up and you have, you know, opportunistic bacteria that have sort of taken over, and you just dump more fiber down there. Anything can eat that. But mm. when you get it in terms of a whole food or you get it with these polyphenols, they, we've evolved with these polyphenols. and so what they do is they help to modulate which bacteria can thrive and which bacteria can't. So they can have cytotoxic effects against some of these pathogenic bacteria. So when you give the fiber in combination with the polyphenols, that combination allows the good guys to thrive and inhibits the bad guys from taking over. So it's a huge, yeah. Polyphenols are a huge thing for the gut.
2: Mm. Yeah, you know, with um, and I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with Paul Saladino, um, head of the carnivore diet. Um, and one one thing that he said was like that, uh, like I'm pretty sure I'm quoting him correctly. He said that curcumin should not be for human consumption at one point. And I look at him and thinking like, man, how can you say that? How can you um, discredit the anti-cancer properties of curcumin? Like, yeah. you know. Just yeah,
1: <laughs> I think I think that's just one of that's just kind of a situation where you know someone's philosophy starts taking over in over the actual evidence, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, Sean, we'll sort of segue into um some of the other things you've taught me over the years. Even like um, you you mentioned blackstrap molasses as a as a useful mm-hmm. source to support someone with anemia.
1: Yeah. Um. So. This is actually interesting because I just found out that I was a little iron deficient myself, uh, and that's one of the things that has improved my thyroid. Uh, going just a little segue from what we were talking about earlier, uh, the, when you're deficient in iron, one of the things that tends to happen is your thyroid production could go down. And this has been shown in human research where they, where they find people with low serum iron or low serum ferritin. And they start giving them iron supplements, and almost always their thyroid numbers improve. So you know, don't just start taking iron because it can it can be bad in excess too. But if you get a blood test and you are low in iron, that can also be one of the causes of fatigue, low thyroid, that that sort of thing. So iron uh, can be difficult though, and some people might find that even with iron supplementation, it could take like over a year or more for their iron levels to go up. And there's some people that. Have a real struggle with it, mm. and they just can't seem to get their numbers to go up at all. And what these people have, what some of them have found, and there's so, so many like testimonials, objective reports on this, uh, but it, it kind of makes sense when you look at the science. Is that when they started adding in blackstrap molasses, their their iron levels start to go up. Now, if you are really deficient in iron, I would still recommend you know having a good iron supplement. But what the blackstrap molasses mm. does is it's it's pretty much this concentrated aspect of soil. So the sugarcane roots, they grow like like uh, 30 to 40 or more feet into the ground and they pick up these minerals that can be deficient in a lot of the diets, you know, in human diets because we tend to not do crop rotation. Soils get depleted in, in minerals and nutrients, that sort of thing. But even more than that, they, the bacteria down there in the soil, they actually create these things called fulvic and humic acids that the plants themselves use to enhance mineral absorption. So Mm -hmm. iron's a mineral. And so those fulvic and humic acids, they enhance iron absorption, copper absorption, and the ability to to retain those minerals. Mm -hmm. And so when (laughs) researchers found out about that, they started asking the question, well, does the same happen in animals? And it turns out that the answer seems like it does. So that's probably the reason why when they started supplementing with black molasses that all of a sudden these anemic or iron deficient individuals could now start actually holding on to the iron and absorbing it and kind of retaining it better Mm -hmm. and you know as a third benefit just going off of the polyphenol thing we were talking about before it's also loaded with polyphenols and the dark color kind of gives that away so Mm -hmm. it's it's uh you know chock full of polyphenols chock full of minerals and trace minerals and it has these fulvic and humic acids that actually allow you to absorb or retain minerals a little bit better. So mm-hmm. people have found it's increased their temperature, it's increased their energy, uh, can improve their, their iron levels. And, uh, it's a really, really safe supplement. So yeah. unlike iron, iron supplementation, which you can really go overboard with, it's, it's, you know, it's very, very difficult to go overboard with black molasses.
2: Mm, that's a really cool one. Um, and definitely want to yeah utilize as part of a, a toolkit to support that anemia um, symptom picture definitely. So Sean, sure. we sort of um, with the I want to go back to dairy. I want to sort of um, understand yeah. the different like the, I know that um, there's different types of milk. Um, so do you want to start with just milk itself and the different types of cow's milk?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, um, the vast majority of people in developed, in most of the developed countries are going to be consuming, I believe it's A1 casein that is, it doesn't always fit with with people's digestion and with their, you know, their gut health. Sometimes it can, can, when people say that milk can be pro-inflammatory, that's what they're kind of talking about is this A1 casein protein that you know, just like a gluten intolerance, where people, where some people have a harder time tolerating gluten than others, there can be some people that have this A1 casein sensitivity. Usually, though, you'll know if this is you, and it's not everyone. And so, people, just like with gluten, where you know it kind of gets blown a little bit out of the out of the proportion, where you know not everyone has to be super gluten free and all of this stuff to be healthy, right? Uh, same thing with A1 casein. And I base that off of the fact that we have just so many randomized trials that show that when they start adding more dairy, that it actually brings down their overall levels of inflammation. So if it really was stressing their body to that extent with that A1 casein, uh, we wouldn't see kind of the overall decrease in inflammation. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're someone though that every time you eat dairy, you get bloated or you get fatigued or you'd have brain fog, like... Then listen to your body, and it, it might not be for you, or it might not be for you at this point in your life. Mm. So there might be some things you need to figure out about how your gut's working, and you know it might be one of those things where it's just not going to be for you. But for most people, th- those issues don't occur when they have dairy, and and for those people, I wouldn't go down that rabbit hole, and I wouldn't worry too much about about that different the casein types. Mm. Um, one, one thing I will say, the, the one thing about dairy that I, I do, especially with those with thyroid issues that they might have to be a little careful is that we actually now know that the dairy is super high in iodine and it's not because they're, that they're getting iodine from the soil or something like that. It's because when they clean their udders, they usually use a type of antibacterial that has iodine in it and it gets absorbed into their body systemically. and so when you have too much iodine and especially not enough selenium, or you're not kind of counteracting some of the oxidative stress that can come with too much iodine, uh, that can actually slow down your thyroid. And so there's been studies that have showed that one glass of milk can have upwards of 600 micrograms of iodine, which is like three times wow. the daily limit, uh, which is a ton. And there's also been multiple human studies now that have showed that through nothing else but a low iodine diet, people have been able to completely reverse subclinical hypothyroidism from that. So bring TSH down a ton from just lowering iodine levels. And so it's one of those things where, um, you know, if you don't have any thyroid condition, if your thyroid's been fine the whole time while you've been on dairy, don't worry about it. But if you've had elevated TSH levels, you can not figure out why. Um, You might want to look in iodine intake is one of the things you want to look at when you're talking about that.
2: Yeah, and this sort of goes back to um, a lot of those, a lot of people that experiment or mega-dose the Lugol's um, iodine. Yeah. So have you seen cases where that sort of just messed people up?
1: It def- so yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's, again, seems like it's a very individual thing. So I, I've actually been um, probably for eight years now on this Facebook group uh, all about iodine supplementation. So it was all about the Lugol's massive doses of iodine. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, I've seen a lot of people come back and post and, and have been like, you know, I've been on iodine now for two months. I feel like crap and my TSH levels are like tenfold of what they were before. So it, the, the problem, so the thing with iodine is that once you megadose and you get past a certain point, which is apparently around 15 milligrams per day is what like Dr. Brownstein and some of those docs that are all into the iodine supplementation, that's what they say your body will actually start combining the iodine with polyunsaturated fats to create these new molecules that are very anti-inflammatory and help to protect the thyroid. And that's one of, and and it, it might be doing that to combat the excess iodine or try to, as a protective response. If you can supplement correctly with iodine plus all of the supporting nutrients that comes with that protocol, you might be okay. And I say Mike because there, there's people that that I've seen that haven't been okay from that. Some people do improve, and but some people don't. But you know what I think is more in line with the actual evidence are the multiple trials we have now that have showed really good effects of low iodine diets. And there's a lot of iodine that people can be getting. It's you know from dairy, from seafood, from a lot of different sources that they could be going way over that they don't even know just based on their habitual diet and it might be worth, you know, experimenting and seeing how your numbers turn out for you by just trying a low iodine diet. So, Sean,
2: just to clarify, you're saying that a low iodine diet can actually drop the TSH and improve T3 and T4.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I can show. I'll send you some of the papers. But crazy. Um, the way that they first found out about that actually was because. When people, you know, when people when they have hypothyroidism, they could get like nodules and things like that too. So, um, or or they might want to give them like radioactive iodine as a form of a treatment, like pharmaceutically. So what what some of the what these studies have done is they put these people on a low iodine diet for two weeks before having the radio iodine um, treatment, and surprisingly, the researchers found. That some of those patients, by the time they were going to give them the radioiodine, their thyroids were normal, and they were like, "Wait, you, it wasn't normal two weeks ago. What's going on?" And so that's how they first started looking at um, this this iodine connection with with uh, hypothyroidism. And since then, we've actually had randomized trials that have compared low iodine diets to you know normal controlled diets, and they've shown that the improvement with with lower TSH levels uh, with the low iodine diet.
2: You know, that, Historic, that's just crazy because right now, like you, you hear so many people say, oh, look, I built, like a million people are worldwide are iodine deficient. You know, you hear that all the I time. I know.
1: It's crazy because it used to be such a big problem like back in 1910, 1920 uh, when people, you know, throughout America and other countries had goiters from not enough iodine. But then we had widespread uh, salt, uh, you know, fortification with iodine since then, and that completely eliminated the goiter response. And around the same time is when we started uh, using this antibacterial iodine for the cows, like I was talking about. And so wow. dairy products started skyrocketing in iodine content as well. And the interesting thing is that even though the goiter went away really quickly with iodine supplementation, it was you know, five, 10 years after iodine fortification program, the thyroid conditions really started to skyrocket, especially hypothyroidism. And it, this wasn't from too little iodine. Uh, it, a lot of times, it, it seems like it's from iodine excess. So one of the, one of the things that comes into play is selenium. If you, have, you need a, kind of an iodine and selenium balance. And so some people, you know, if you're not eating nuts or you're not eating some types of other foods high in selenium, you could have selenium deficiency, which is going to make the iodine even harder and create even more oxidative stress in the thyroid the selenium could help inhibit that a little bit. And, uh, you know, there's been a couple studies where they've given selenium with myo because that acts as a second messenger in the thyroid. And selenium plus myo is so far also getting great results with especially subclinical hypothyroidism. So the people that just have like elevated TSH levels, but it's not that autoimmune you know, it's not in the hundreds. It might be like ten, twelve, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's cool. So, so lowering the iodine levels, increasing possibly selenium and myo acetol is a strategy you <laughs> might want to look into if you've been struggling with hypothyroidism. Yeah, that's all. Awesome. I can send you. I can send you some of the papers if you're interested too. Yeah,
2: I'd love to. We'll share that for our listeners because that's um that's the first I've ever heard, and it's sort of ironic though with the um, a lot of the selenium rich foods are actually iodine though at the same time aren't they
1: (laughs) yeah so you'd have to yeah that would be you know brazil nuts or something that's specifically selenium and not not that combo of the ion with selenium
2: yeah cool that's really interesting with um just going back to the omega threes, so you specifically said that um they can directly increase uh t4 t3 or is it the conversion what are they doing there
1: yeah. So they do a couple things. Um, one thing they seem to do is they seem to be able to protect the thyroid against destruction or from oxidative stress, which to some people sounds crazy because they're polyunsaturated fats. But consistently uh, with not only rodent research, but human research, supplementing with things like fish oil can actually decrease the amount of things like MDA, which is a lipid oxidation marker. So is something that you're, you're supplementing is something that should oxidize like crazy, but somehow it brings the oxidation levels down. And the way that it does that is actually through improving the ability of the cell to combat oxidative stress itself. So each cell has to produce things like glutathione, superoxide dismutase, catalase, all of these endogenous antioxidants. And when you supplement things like omega-3s, it increases the, you know, not to get too technical, but the NRF1 and 2 response of the cell and the antioxidant response element of the cell. And that combo can increase these antioxidants in the cell and actually help the cell combat oxidative stress. Mm. And the same thing happens in thyroid. So there's been rodent research where they've given rodents like a toxin that tends to give them hypothyroidism. And then they'll give another group of rats that same toxin but they'll give them EPA, one of the fish oils, on top of the toxin, and it significantly protects the thyroids from, the, the rodents from getting hypothyroidism from that toxin. And so just a protective response is one of it, one of the ways, but then also it seems like there is an increased peripheral conversion of thyroid. So in the liver and in a little bit in the gut, the T4 has to get converted to T3, and so it seems like fish oils increase that conversion rate a little bit. And also they act directly on the thyroid receptor beta and increase its mRNA expression. Okay. So there's a, there's a bunch of different ways on how omega-3 is beneficial for thyroid. But in mm-hmm. general, uh, as long as you don't go crazy, you know, I'm not talking like 20 grams of fish oil a day, but, yeah. you know, a couple of grams of fish oil and, and a, safe, a safe dosage is going to be a good idea.
2: Man, you're putting forward a strong argument for me to get back on the uh, fish oil bandwagon. Because back (laughs) in the day, like I used to, when I was, you know, I I literally used fish oil for like five to six years combined with like astaxanthin every single day for like years. Um, Yeah. Honey.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, I mean, you don't have to have fish oil. It's just that if you don't have things like, uh, you know, high quality salmon or sardines or, any natural form of the omega threes, then I think uh, supplementing a, a, at least a small dose yeah. of the fish oil is going to be a good idea. Also, just to combat a little bit the elevated omega sixes, that even if you're careful, it's so hard to avoid, you know, yeah. having that. So just raising, if the omega threes are you know this high, but you increase the omega threes a little bit, it really helps with that ratio, and so it, it can help just the overall you know inflammation in the body a bit. Mm.
2: Did you have ever experiment with um, astaxanthin at all?
1: Uh, I did for a very short time. Uh, I stopped once I found one rodent study that showed that it also interfered with the benefits of exercise. Okay. So kind of like I was talking before, there's, when these isolated antioxidants, they, they just kind of mess up the redox response of the cell, right? So when you exercise, we need that oxidative stress because it's a signaling response for the cell to get better if you're taking these powerful, but single, single molecule antioxidants, like a high dose of single vitamin E or acythanthin or alpha lipoic acid uh, or um, uh, N-acetylcysteine is a big one. All of those, they inhibit the muscle growth. They inhibit like the VO2 max response. They just inhibit the overall benefits of exercise likely because they're just damping down that signal <clears throat> for, the, for the cell to respond. Mm. So you know we don't know for sure if that would happen in humans, but once I saw the rodent study, I'm just I just stopped it.
2: <laughs> I mean, speaking from personal experience, I mean, uh, back in the day, I was playing professional soccer, like and I was training probably two to three times a week and um, a match on the weekend, and I was literally using four milligrams of astaxanthin daily for probably about two years, and I can guarantee it actually didn't blunt any of the aerobic conditioning from my training. Yeah. Like I was still getting fitter each week. I can't say for sure whether without the astaxanthin, I would have gotten even bitter, but I was pretty like aerobically conditioned. And even I noticed that when I used astaxanthin, it was really, um, did an amazing job at blunting fatigue and really for the higher end, like endurance activities, it was really effective at, um, I always felt like I could catch my breath back quicker when I had astaxanthin, which was really cool.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm just, again, basing that off of one rodent study, right? So we don't know what would happen in humans or with the dosage. Um, but, and also it's not going to negate them. Like it's not going to completely annihilate all your gains, right? But it could take it down a little bit. Um, I think we need more research there. One option from my perspective, if you if you kind of want the same benefits that I just heard you talk about, um, lipothiamine oh, yeah. is, can also have those like, uh, anti-fatigue benefits, but it actually amplifies the benefits of exercise. So the, a couple of rodent studies showed that high doses of allithiamine or lipothiamine, they're synonyms, um, they it not only didn't blunt the benefits, but actually enhanced things like grip strength, aerobic capacity, that type of stuff. So that's a pretty interesting alternative.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Um, I've had good experiences with megadosing um, vitamin B1, just the, the thiamine, HCL, when I first yeah. started that, like that was um, incredible for like mental clarity and memory, yeah. it was it was really cool. I I liked
1: I liked thiamine as well too, and I would actually still be taking the regular thiamine in high doses. For me, it started to make me smell weird. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I started to get place. like this weird like it wasn't like a BO scent; it was like a sulfur, weird smell, and like there was no escaping it. So I had to I had to stop that. I, even like I don't know, like a couple hundred milligrams would do it. So I, uh, that's why I went to the lipothiamine and that's, that's worked well.
2: (laughs) Well, what about, cause there's, um, I've been paying a lot of attention, um, in the whole thiamine space. There is another one that TTFD, have you, have you seen that one?
1: Yeah. So that one has, has pretty much the best research around it. Um, and, and it's really, it's almost identical to lipothiamine. So like lipothiamine and TTFD are going to be very, very similar in their effects, uh, it's just a different way to kind of make them lipid soluble, mm. um, but they're they're very close. That you know, whenever they use either one, they tend to get really good results. Mm. Um, so it, the the TTFD is more expensive; it's harder to find. So that's why I've kind of gone with the lipothiamine. But um, but yeah, that would be that would be a great alternative.
2: Mm. What else would you recommend for um, just in general? Like if there's one supplement that could support. Um, weight training. What would what would be your go to?
1: I mean, uh, <clears throat> probably after protein, after creatine. Um, I there's it's hard to pick just one. Uh, I would I would probably have to say nitrates. Right would would probably be my top, just because uh, I've got I've definitely gotten benefits from them in terms of like not being as fatigued being able to get higher rep ranges and sets. Uh, And it goes well with creatine because creatine works well in like the power rep. So like maybe sets of five or sets of four, creatine is going to have a a big effect because it's using the, you know, creatine phosphate system for energy output. But when you get into higher rep ranges, like sets of 10, sets of 12, you're focusing more on carb oxidation then and not so much on just ATP creatine. and so. What we know from the nitrate research and from pretty much anything that that will boost nitric oxide is it can spare oxygen use, so it can actually have the muscle cells output more energy with the same amount of oxygen, mm. uh, which is a pretty cool thing and so all all I mean by it's not really supplement it's more food it's just eating like canned beets is something I eat pretty often, or eating you know cooked spinach, or if you don't want the oxalates, you can have uh cooked. Uh, arugula arugula mustard greens like that whole type of thing you don't it doesn't need to be spinach but there's a bunch of leafy greens that you could choose um they're a little bit lower in oxalates but i i personally have never had kidney issues and stuff so i don't worry about the oxalates in them yeah but but that whole the whole nitrate uh thing kind of helps me a lot in in a bunch of different ways but one of which is exercise
2: yeah yeah that's cool all right well um I think that pretty much covers most of our th- what we decided to talk about. We could probably keep going for another. I'll definitely bring you back on for another show, man, because you're full of
1: yeah. It was really great. Cool. I know this was kind of a kind of a whirlwind of <laughs> all different <laughs> topics and information, but I hope it, I hope your listeners could kind of take some some key points from it.
2: Oh, for sure, man, for sure. So, what what about um, for those listening in? Where can they find you and um, your services if you offer any?
1: Yeah. So, um, you can find, so my website called golden health method, uh, on Facebook, and Instagram, it's the same thing. Just handle slash golden health method. Um, I'm really active on Instagram right now. I'm posting, you know, at least a few times a week. Uh, it, all, all of the concert, all of the content is very research based. So I always list like the PubMed ID. So all you have to do is type that, type those numbers into Google followed by the word PubMed and it'll pop up. First result will be the study. Um, so I, what, my whole thing again, is just to try to make sure that all the information I put out there is very reliable. I don't want, you know, I don't want anyone thinking that I'm just like, you know, speaking just my opinions or something like that. It's all like super evidence-based because I'm, I just want to, you know, know the truth uh, about research and nutrition. So that's kind of the main places to find me. I'm not currently doing any type of like, uh, internet or long distance consultations or nutrition coaching or anything like that, but I'll likely be doing that next year. Um, if you happen to be in California or San Diego, uh, then I work at the chiropractic clinic called Back in Motion. So, you know, treating anything from low back pain, tendinitis, knee pain, all, all various types of conditions like that.
2: Awesome, man. Well, um, for those listening in, I'll be linking all of uh, Sean's socials in the um, description below. Um, But otherwise, it's been uh, a pleasure having you on the show, man. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it's been fantastic. Thanks for having me again.
2: Sweet. Well, thanks to everyone for listening in. um, And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.
1: All right. Take care.
2: Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boostyourbiology. This has been a No Filter Media Production.
0: Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampy. Mm.